Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're in Mark chapter 3, and today we are going to be considering a message I call the unpardonable sin. It's right here in Mark three twenty-eight. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, we return today to this series. We remember that this book was written in the midst of a growing international chaos. It was directed primarily to the people at Rome, to the Romans, but since the Romans ruled the world, they were really scattered everywhere. People who had believed on Jesus needed to be reminded of who Jesus was and what he had done and what he had said. And the people who didn't believe on Jesus needed to be told who Jesus was, what he had done, and what he had said. We live today in a day of growing international chaos. And I believe it's good for us also to reacquaint ourselves with who Jesus is, what he is doing in us and for us. And just remind ourselves of what a glorious privilege it is to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, today we're going to be looking in this passage. And it is a passage that seemingly has caused unending controversy and a lot of misunderstanding. Because it presents a sin from which there can never be forgiveness. And thus, uh, my title, The Unpardonable Sin. I want us to begin today by reacquainting ourselves with the promise of Jesus in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, where he said, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, then, cleanses us from all sin. Not just some, but from all sin. So it is puzzling to us and maybe even chilling to us when we read Jesus making this statement in this passage referring to people who would never have forgiveness. That's one part of it. But the other side of that then is the logical consequence. They are subject to eternal condemnation. To put that as bluntly as Jesus put it, it meant they would burn in the fires of hell forever and ever and ever. That's as serious, folk, as it gets. As is always the case in Scripture, we consider this passage as a part of its broader context. And we do that uh, by following what's known as the grammatical historical method. That is that the Bible gives us words. It is God's inspired word. It was written by people to people in a specific context. And so the words that are said then have a set historical meaning. Uh, but it's not just a historical thing because then there is an application that can be made to us. 
I might look back and consider uh, whether or not George Washington, for example, uh, actually skipped a silver dollar across the Potomac River. And the answer to that, I know I don't know whether that really happened or not. And if it did, so what? Did he really chop down the cherry tree and refuse to lie about it? I don't know whether that happened or not. And if he did, so what? But you know what? Jesus Christ really did live and die for our sins on the cross. He was buried and he didn't say buried. He rose again the third day. That's not just a historical fact. It means everything to us. And so we can see how that uh, it's, these aren't just the Word of God is not, though it has a historical setting, it has an application then to us. But in order to understand it and apply it correctly, we have to understand it within that historical context. Otherwise, we can take a Bible verse and basically do whatever we want to with it. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. That is a source of a lot of fanciful nonsense in our world today at best. And outright heresy at worst. So this morning, if we want to understand what the unpardonable sin is, as it's so often called, and as Jesus describes it in this passage, we're going to have to look at it in its context. And Jesus set that for us in verse 30. The reason why he said this is because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. And so Mark chapter 3 is going to bring three specific groups of people up for consideration. The first one is Jesus' family. That is His earthly family. There are then Jesus' followers. As Mark mentions how He calls the 12 men who would be known as apostles. So we have His family, that's one group. His followers, the men who would be called apostles. And then we have another group that is mentioned in our text. The one we'll call in our message today, the unforgiven. The unforgiven. His family, his followers, and the unforgiven. There was a man named C.S. Lewis who was a Christian, a noted author, very famous, and a former agnostic who would present a paradigm based on these three groups of people as Mark presents them in this passage. His paradigm suggested that it was absurd, it was not proper, it's not right, it's in fact not possible to refer to Jesus as a good man while at the same time rejecting that he is the Son of God. And he based that paradigm then on these three groups and their responses because he said considering that Jesus very clearly identifies himself as the Son of God and made himself equal with God, then really there's only three possibilities and they're illustrated in this text. That is that Jesus is a, is a liar. That's a possibility. That he lied, that he was a deceiver. And in fact, that's exactly what one of these groups are going to say. That Jesus is in league with the father of lies. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. That's one possibility. He also suggested that he could be a lunatic. That is, that he'd lost his mind. We would understand that response if people come to us and claim to be God today. That's what most of us are going to conclude. Or the third possibility is that he's telling the truth and he is exactly who 
he says he is, the Son of God, the living Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, Savior of the world. Islam presents Jesus as a prophet. I've talked to many of the followers of Islam, uh, Muslims as we refer to them, who uh, claim to believe in Jesus as a prophet. They do not believe that he's the son of God, but they believe he's a prophet. Gandhi famously spoke of Jesus as a great teacher, though his roots were in Hinduism. I have visited with people who were Sikhs, that's S-I-K-H-S. They believed that Jesus was a great man, a religious man, a great teacher. Uh, They did not believe in him as the son of God. But though there are many people who would say this, I believe Jesus is a good man. I believe he was a prophet sent from God. I I believe he was a great teacher. He was a a, a great philanthropist. He went about doing a lot of good things. But I I just don't believe in him as as Lord. This passage really shows us that that kind of conclusion is not possible. He's either a liar or he's lost his mind or he's Lord of all. Interestingly, in John chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus uh, invites people to take that consideration. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God, he says. This is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, God clearly invites us to look at Jesus, to consider Jesus Christ, to think about who he is, to think about what he has said, to look at what he has done, to consider his words and consider his works to consider his claims, yes, but then to consider the validity of those claims. This is what God invites us to do. God is not concerned. He's not worried. He says, you see Jesus. This is what God wants you to do. Look at him. Consider him. And when you look at him, consider him, and you believe on him, then he gives you the promise. (laughs) You'll have everlasting life, (laughs) and I will raise you up. The last day, death indeed has no hold on those who are believers in Jesus Christ. This is what God wants. Look at Jesus. Consider Him. Think about Him. And if you do, then He says if you believe on Him, you have a great promise. We'll see then how this played out because unfortunately not everybody who looks at Jesus, who considers who He is, what he says and what he's done. Go away believing on him. The first group, of course, that's brought up is his family. In verse 21, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. They show up then again in verse 31, then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, by this time of Jesus' ministry, his stepfather, his earthly father, as he would have been known, Joseph, was apparently dead. But the passage speaks of how his mother and his brother showed up. Now, we know that Mary, of all people, knew exactly who Jesus was. 
But we also know that his brothers very famously were not believers. They did not believe on him. And that's clearly said in John chapter 7 and verse 5. Now it's important for us to notice uh, that there is the idea out there that, uh, that Mary remained a perpetual virgin for the rest of her life. But you know the Bible very clearly speaks of how that Jesus had brothers, and we know uh, some of them, and some of them are mentioned, his sisters, so uh, they apparently had a, a fairly large family. The most famous, of course, of all of Jesus' siblings was James. Uh, James was not a believer, but we know that Jesus personally appeared to James after his resurrection. I hope God got it on video. I want to see it. Hey, brother. <laughs> it's me. I just want to see that. What, what an incredible meeting that must have been for James. His brother who grew up with him was around him all the time and yet did not believe on him. And yet suddenly there's the living Lord Jesus, dead, buried, alive. James became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He pastored the first church at Jerusalem. James became a believer. We know about a, another one of Jesus' half-brothers, Jude, as we're told. Yes, he wrote the book of Jude. He also became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here they were at this time, and they were concluding that Jesus has lost his mind. Now, we don't know why that Mary was there. Maybe she knew that the, what the brothers were doing. Maybe she was concerned because the big deal that was going on was that Jesus was creating a lot of tension between himself and the religious leaders, and they were out to kill him. We've seen that already. In this day and time, they probably wouldn't have stopped with Jesus. They would have very likely attacked his family as well. That was very common practice. So there was some concern, don't you know, have you lost it? Why? Why are you antagonizing these people? Don't you know what they can do to you? Have you lost it? The substance of the disagreement between Jesus and the religious leaders was his claim to be the Son of God. But what did Jesus do to prove that? We've already seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle in Mark's gospel. After a while, you know, there were so many. Uh, Mark just got to say, and he went into this village and he healed many. And they, all, they brought all their sick people and he healed them all. I mean, he couldn't... <laughs> the book of Mark would be this thick if he had written down all of them. He just said there was many, many, many. Imagine he went into this town and they brought everybody there that was sick. Imagine that happening in Cabot, Arkansas today. Can you imagine how many people, how many sick kids, how many sick adults, how many cancer patients bedridden waiting to die would be brought out and whatever, cancer patients, stroke patients, heart attack victims, whoever they were, children who were dying with illnesses that nobody could cure, whatever they were. And Jesus healed them all. Not only that, but there were those horribly uh, possessed people, demon-oppressed, uh, had taken control of these people's lives and were using them horribly. And when Jesus came, those demon-possessed people were set free, for the demons were cast out. 
When they saw then that Jesus had power over disease, when they saw that he had power over death, when they saw that he had power over the demons, there really was only one logical conclusion they should have made. That he is indeed the Son of God. If anybody would have made that and supported that claim, you would expect his family to do it. But they didn't. Mark begins the gospel in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 by introducing us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. First statement. Before that chapter was over, you'd see Jesus baptized and you would hear the voice of Almighty God speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son. This is my Son. So you have the testimony of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then you have the testimony of God the Father, this is my beloved Son. The next voice that would tell us that Jesus is the Son of God was the voice of the demons. Yeah, Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, as they cried out and said, you are the Son of God. But in Mark's gospel, to find a human voice, a man, a human being who would say that Jesus is the Son of God, you have to read all the way over to Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. And who was it but the centurion that crucified him who said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's not a coincidence. Remember I told you that Mark was writing this predominantly for a Roman audience. It's not a coincidence that he reported the testimony of the centurion truly. This man was the son of God. That was the big issue, you see. And when the family considered all this and they heard about what Jesus was saying and how that he was antagonizing the religious leaders, they came to the conclusion Jesus had lost it. He was crazy. But notice that within this context, now listen to me today, within this context, that was not an unpardonable sin. Remember that James became a believer. His sin was forgiven. Jude became a believer. His sin was forgiven. So though they said that terrible thing about Jesus, Jesus, you've lost your mind. Their sin was pardoned. But that was not unpardonable. We move on then to his followers. And Verse 16 says, Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges. Bo- that's hard for me to say. Boanerges. Boanerges. There, I'll get it out. Uh, it's not hard to say what it means. The sons of thunder. How would you like to be a couple of preachers called the sons of thunder? Man, I love that. Uh, There was Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. 
They went into a house and the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Mark would clearly identify the purpose for which these men were called. In verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. In short, these men would be authorized and they would be empowered to do the same things that Jesus was doing so that Jesus' ministry would continue through them. But why would Mark place them in this setting? Well, obviously a part of that was to show that they had their lives changed by the power of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. He called them, he chose them, he consecrated them to follow him and be an extension of his ministry. These men then became a testimony to the saving, life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? You and you and you and you and all you folks and you folks watching at home, you still are a testament to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we know that Jesus is real? We know what He's done in our own heart and in our own life. Here were these men. They believed on Jesus. Now they're sent out to do the same thing that Jesus was doing. And the power then that was in Jesus Christ was now in them. Years later, he would say, you shall receive power. <laughs> and that power is still operating and still working. I'm not saying today that we're doing all the miracles the apostles did. It's no small thing to have an apostle lay hands on you. And certainly Jesus had laid hands on them. It was a special thing. But the important thing for us to see is that we see very clearly then in the text how that believing on Jesus had changed their lives. But I think there's another thing we can see. In John's gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 45, we're told about Nathaniel who in this passage is also called Bartholomew. And it was said, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. There's that invitation again. Come and see. Just come look. Come consider. You see, Bartholomew had a simple statement to make. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. The Jewish leaders would propose that same thing because they said, you know, search the scriptures. There's never been a prophet who's arisen out of Nazareth. Well, they were saying, well, Jesus can't possibly be good, much less could he be the Son of God or be the Messiah because he came from Nazareth. It's a terrible thing for him to say, but within a matter of moments of meeting Jesus, he was a believer. He was a believer. In fact, all Jesus said to him, he said, well, I saw you over there under a fig tree. <laughs> Nathaniel was saying, you're my Lord. He said, you believe on that? He said, you're going to see more than this. And of course he did. What incredible things he would see from the Lord Jesus. James and Jude had both denied and lived in denial of Jesus and thought he was crazy. But they were forgiven of that. Bartholomew had doubted. Maybe others doubted as well. They were forgiven. We go forward a few months and we'd see not just Nathaniel or Bartholomew, but all of the apostles who would deny Jesus. Simon Peter would deny him three times. 
but they were all forgiven. They were all restored to their position of service and honor. So here's, here's two groups then. His family, they, they, they thought that he had lost his mind. But there were also his followers, and they believed on him, even though some doubted. But both of them stand as examples of how they were forgiven. But if we can see his family, and if we can see his followers... We can also see the unforgiven today. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. Beelzebub plays on the word Baal, which meant Lord, and proclaims him to be the Lord of the dung pile, or the Lord of the flies. It was a horrible slur they used against Jesus then to declare him to be in league with the devil. They were accusing him of being a complete fraud, a liar, doing the devil's work. So while his family considered that he has lost his mind, but that didn't explain the miraculous. The scribes then set out to explain that. They said he is doing these miracles by the power of of the devil. Like his family, the scribes had considered Jesus. They had looked carefully at him. They had listened to him. They had listened carefully to his teaching. They had watched what he did. They had seen the miracles. And they came to the conclusion then that Jesus was doing this by the power of the devil himself. Now Jesus responded to that and exposed the absurdity of that accusation in verse 23. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. Uh, The application of that parable is obvious. It simply means if Satan is out there casting demons out of people. I mean, he already had these folks implanted. They were in deep incognito. They were in the synagogues, inhabited or or indwelled by demon spirits, and nobody knew it. So they were out there in every village, in every town, all of these demon-infested people, demon-inhabited people, and wherever Jesus went, he was exposing them and casting the demons out of them. And the question is, why would Satan do that? Why would he go out and take out his own team? Why would he attack his own people? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so Jesus destroyed their argument very quickly. If Satan was doing something like that, then Satan is going to wipe himself out. And that's an absurd thing. The other side then of Jesus' argument is just as powerful. He said, if you want to plunder a strong man's house, you first have to bind the strong man. And over and over and over again, Jesus had done just that. In order to cast these demons out of those people, he had to demonstrate his power over the devil. He obviously had it. And he used it again and again and again. So again, it brings us back to the conclusion that they should have reached. And watching Jesus doing what he was doing and seeing the power that he had over disease, the power that he had over death, the power that he had over the demons, they should have believed on him as Lord 
But these men made this terrible conclusion. A statement that Jesus called blasphemy against the Spirit. That unholy, horrible act of attributing His work to the Lord of the dung heap. Jesus then responded to them in verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Some years ago, there was a popular game show that took America by storm. They'd bring contestants in and ask them questions. And if they answered all the questions correctly, at the end, they would win a million dollars. Some of you might remember that game show. In fact, it may still be on. I don't know, but the original host I know is dead. Uh, some of you might not remember. You might have to Google it later. That's okay. It's not really all that important. But if you remember that show, when they would ask the question, the host then would always give them another question after they'd given their answer. And that other question he'd always ask, is that your final answer? Is that your final answer? You see, what we are seeing these people do is they had concluded, made a conclusion about Jesus. They had looked at Him. They had considered Him. They had seen what His work was. And they had given their final answer. This was their conclusion. It was well reasoned. It was well thought out. They thought about it carefully. They were not prepared to say that Jesus was doing what he was doing by the power of God because that would require that they believe on him. And so the only alternative to that was that he had to be doing it by the power of the devil himself. And that was their conclusion. It was their final answer. Jesus would go through this exact same scenario and we see it play out in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, he would say to this same group of people, uh, the religious leaders in Israel, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Notice verse 40, he says, And you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not come to me that you might have life. He would address them again in John chapter 8 and verse 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Do you see how things have progressed? First he said to them, you will not come. But then he says, you cannot come. And because of that, he says to them very clearly, you will die in your sins. They considered Jesus. They saw the miracles. They heard His preaching. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They were convinced that they were absolutely wrong, right? But they were absolutely wrong. And so first they refused Him. They refused to come. You will not come. But then the progression, you cannot come. You see, it is possible to make a final decision about Jesus Christ. 
It is possible to so harden your heart against the Holy Spirit that that heart will never, ever open. And once that is done, there is no possibility of forgiveness. And let me hasten to say this morning, listen to me carefully. The Lord Jesus has an advantage that you and I don't have and that He could see in the hearts of people. And He knew when they had given their final answer. We don't know that, but Jesus did. And He still does. Of course, that question that people always ask is, well, what if they would have asked forgiveness? They never would. They never would. These people have made their decision. They would made up their mind. They were never going to bow before Jesus Christ and call Him Lord. They were never going to plead with Him on the basis of the cross to receive forgiveness. They were never going to admit that they were wrong. Jesus knew that. And therefore He would say to them, You will never be forgiven. You've reached a conclusion. There was no turning back. They had ascribed the work of the Lord Jesus to the work of the devil. They had ascribed the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. They would never, ever, ever be saved. I realize this morning this is a sobering thing. And it should be. It does a couple of things for us. Number one, it lets us be reminded of the fact that it is so possible, it is possible for a person to so harden their hearts in rejection to the Lord Jesus that they will never respond to the gospel, never open their hearts to the Holy Spirit. We don't know when that happens, but the Lord Jesus does. It is possible then for a person to say no to Jesus for the last time. I've seen that happen. As people have rejected the gospel and within a matter of hours or a matter of days, they were dead. I've seen them go out of a revival meeting saying no to Jesus and not live for another day. It's easy for us to see that when it happens. And you say, well, they might have, I know that. There's always hope from our perspective. But let's understand something. Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of people. And it's possible to say no to Jesus too many times. Folks, it's my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel today to remind you of that. And to warn you of the eternal danger of saying no to Jesus Christ. Most people don't really say no. They just say not today. Some other time. You've been putting this decision off maybe for a long time. I plead with you today. Stop. Stop putting it off. Stop saying no to Jesus. These people have done that. They had done it too many times. And they would never, ever be forgiven. It also highlights uh, for us the importance 
of the work that God has called us to do. You shall be witnesses, he said, unto me. And if you're saved, then you have experienced the life-changing power of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you've been contenting yourself and knowing that Jesus was a good guy and he taught a lot of good things. And yeah, I kind of like Jesus. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Have you had that experience in your life where you recognized that you were a sinner? And you believed on Jesus Christ on the basis of what He did on the cross of Calvary so that you received Him as Savior and you confessed Him as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Have you had that life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ where you experience a new birth? Oh, you can. You can. And you don't have to wait another moment because you can receive that right now. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Sobering passage today. But presenting to us the absolutely true paradigm. Right here played out for us in scripture. Is Jesus, was he just a crazy guy? No. That doesn't fit the evidence. Was he a liar? No, that that doesn't fit it either. He... Yes, said he's the son of God, but then he proved it. He did what nobody else had ever done. And the proper response then is to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The interesting thing is this morning, it's not a question of whether or not you'll ever say that. The only question is when. Because Paul wrote in the book of Philippians that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The only question is when. You can do it now in this life and you'll receive Him as your Savior if you wait. You wait, you'll find it too late. Won't you receive him today? Maybe you need to follow him in baptism. Maybe God's leading you to be a part of this church family. Maybe you just need to have more uh, answers to your questions. I'd love to have the chance to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But for now, it's your time. To make a decision. Will you receive Jesus Christ? Or you will make that incredibly dangerous decision. Of saying no to him. Let's stand together please.